but it is my privilege without a heavenly language to introduce my brother Alex Mendez and his wife Julie. Thank you so much, Julie, for flying out as well. And Alex is the, he comes with so many titles, but I'm just going to say he's a great brother in Christ. Uh, but he is truly, he is the leadership for the EFTA in this area of multi-ethnic ministries. I'm proud of our denomination, our very Swedish denomination, that they recognize the challenges that they have in that, that area, and they're making all efforts to reach out to all people. And that is the group that uh, Alex is, uh, is heading up, is leader, is president of. And this week, uh, because of his convictions, because of his hard work over the years, we're hosting a national conference here called Immigrant Hope. And so be praying for that, and we're excited what God would do with that. Brother, share the word with us for a little bit of time, and then we'll chat. Thank you much, Jeremy, and uh, for this host, uh, church hosting. Um, if I was going to write a book on my life, the title I've already decided on, but I don't know what I would write, uh, in Spanish, it would be ni de aquí ni de allá, which means I'm from neither here nor there. Uh, I was raised in Laredo that was 97% Hispanic, and so diversity does not come to me by taste. It was uh, a, a sort of a God thing. Um, fajitas are what I was raised on. Fajitas come from the beef side, uh, and it was, the, it was the meat that the butchers would throw into the grinder to make hamburger out of because nobody else wanted it. But we loved it, and so we'd go buy it for 19 cents a pound before they would chop it up. And so we would have beef fajitas. We loved it way before anybody knew what beef fajitas were. And I remember when I moved to, San, to Austin to go to school, they had chicken fajitas. I started laughing my head off because chickens don't have beef skirts. <laughs> Silly gringos, I mean, okay. At least it will keep them eating the chicken fajitas so I can have more beef fajitas for myself. But then when I went to Minneapolis, my boss blew my mind. He says, oh, and we have some fish fajitas, fish tacos. And I, for a long time, I, I, I've, I've gone as far as I can go in diversity. And, and there's no such thing as chicken uh, fajitas or fish fajitas until he once trapped me into eating one of them. He took us on a retreat to his cabin, and of course he has the food. And so he loves waffles, and uh, he had done me a favor. He got me some picante sauce. So I got an egg, I put it in the waffle, and then I put picante sauce, and I ate it like that just to make fun of him. <laughs> but then he fed me a a fish taco. I, it, was, uh, it was like a, um, a special experience. <laughs> it was good. And I started learning the creativity of God. Now, I want you to know I have learned that there is an end in terms of the good of multiculturalism. Uh, I went to a Renaissance festival in Maryland and there were these Scottish men with kilts, and they were playing the drums. And so you kind of, after a while, you get into that, and you quit worrying about if they're wearing clothes underneath or not. <laughs> but then they start playing the Macarena, and they're in kilts, and then they start looking sexy. That's when you know you're, you're approaching the very edge of multiculturalism and what you shouldn't go any further than that. <laughs> uh, I would like for you to turn to your Bible to John chapter 4. <laughs> you know, there's something to be said about sameness. 
it helps things to be predictable. It helps us to know how to behave. It helps us to know, you know, where we can go, what we can say, what we can't say. There is something uh, about that, but there's also a place where it thwarts what God is trying to do. And in John chapter 4, I have really been blessed uh, by this book. In in John chapter 4, we read a passage that's called typically the woman at the well. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much. You're the creator. Lord, that is probably the number one greatest attribute I can declare of you, Lord. You are amazing in your creation, in your diversity, in in your prodding us, Lord, to, to circumvent the world, to move on. But then, Lord, we thank you so much for all of the different people that you've made and how we can be blessed like chicken fajitas, like fish tacos, like Father, all of these other things that we want to stay just with one, but you offer so much more. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Open it up for us even this morning as we think about your world. In Jesus' name, amen. When I, when I read the Gospel of John, I, uh, I had my, my head blown I, I'm, I've read John chapter 4 many, many times, and it's a great passage, and we get so much out of it. I mean, uh, so I'm a t- New Testament major in seminary. John is the first book of the Bible they make you translate into Greek, because it is simple Greek, not to be confused with not profound. It is extremely profound, but simple. And... So as you read the Gospel of John, you see that Jesus is, first of all, it says at the very beginning, he must go through Samaria, which should raise the question, why? So he and his disciples are going through Samaria. Typically, a Jew would walk around Samaria because they did not want to be touched or be involved with Samaritans because they were half-Jews, illegitimate. In fact, they would call them the dogs. And so Jesus goes to the well and he sends the disciples into Sychar to get food. And he stays out. And in verse 7, a woman comes, a Samaritan woman, and he says to her, give me a drink. And she said, why are you talking to me? Your people don't talk to my people. And uh, that, 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 that whole word, that whole conversation is profound on so many levels. Um, it's, a, it's an appointment that shouldn't have happened. Geographically, it's Samaria. G- gender-wise, she's a woman. He's an aspiring young rabbi who would be caught dead alone with a woman, but here he is and he's talking to her. She's not just a Samaritan woman, she's an adulteress, a sinner. Another heavy, big reason why Jesus shouldn't have engaged her, at least in our minds, even in the rabbinic world's mind. But he does. He defies all convention, and he talks with her. And Jesus says, and this is probably one of my favorite gospel presentations, John chapter 4, verse 10. Simple. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Simple gospel presentation. It's actually also an outline for the rest of the conversation with the woman. Because right away he goes into a conversation on the gift. And so it's talking about water, and the water is living water, and the water turns out to be eternal life in the conversation. 
But the second part of it, if you knew the giver, right away then she starts saying, well, uh, are you a prophet? And so all of a sudden there's a conversation going on. Are you a prophet? And then she says, well, on this mountain we worship, but you say on that one. And Jesus then makes it very clear at the very end, I am the Messiah. About that time, the disciples come. People are great at reading body language. This woman, extremely intuitive. She can see the frowns. She can see the disdain. She can see the hate. You think that Jesus is the only one that can read minds? So did she. But by that time, Jesus' work was done. She was saved. The only reason she was saved by is when Jesus says, I, you can have eternal life. But she asked for the eternal life, and she said, go bring your husband. All of a sudden, she is confronted with her greatest fear and failure, and she has to admit to the Savior that she has had five. And Jesus is the one that tells her that. She leaves the, that spot and goes into the city. And here's her gospel presentation, the most corrupt gospel presentation anywhere recorded in the Bible, almost. Come see a man that told me everything I ever did. That's not very clear. But Jesus said, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. That's as clear as it gets. But she goes and tells them, come see a man that told me everything I ever did. But you see, here's the thing. Her gospel presentation was her life. You see, there's a reason why that woman had to go out of the city to get her water. There was water in the city. There were wells in the city, but she was an outcast. None of the women wanted their husbands around her, so she had to go out of the city. She was shamed, hated, rejected, afraid, and isolated. And now this is a transformed woman. She's no longer afraid, ashamed. She doesn't care who knows or what knows. And all of a sudden, the woman is transformed. She now is the evangelist. And her greatest story isn't what Jesus said, it's what Jesus did. He told me everything I ever did. In other words, he knew me, he talked to me, and he gave me eternal life, and I believed him. Now, I think one of the greatest powers of life is transformation. When people see Jesus change his life. So the whole town goes out to see Jesus. Okay, here's the disciples. Think about the irony of this. Jesus sent the disciples in to get food. He comes, they go into town. They come back with baloney chips, nachos, and maybe some chorizo. <laughs> she comes out with the whole town. The irony of it all is incredible. Transformation. I, I've really asked myself, why did they come out? Did they come out because they wanted to see who's this person that talked to this woman and didn't know any better than to talk to her? Or did they come out because they saw this woman who had been incredibly transformed, who was no longer ashamed, who was willing to talk openly about what she did? I'll let you figure that one out. But here's the other thing that started noodling in my mind. The disciples are talking to Jesus, she leaves. They're coming, the city is coming out, and Jesus is talking to them. 
And I want you to look at verse 34 and 35. Because I found something that just blew my mind. In verse 34, Jesus said, My food is to do the will... I'm going to go to 35. Do you not say, There are still four months, and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. So he's looking at the, the people coming. Look on the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages uh, and gathers for eternal, fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. Look at verse 35. Do you not say there are four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, Lift up your eyes and look on the fields. I want you to notice something very profound there. There's two harvests. There are two harvests there. One is when Jesus says, do you not say there are four months and then comes a harvest? My wife is from a farming family. It's like clockwork. Yes, there's some faith involved because rain needs to come. But they plant at a certain time, they weed at a certain time, they spray the crops, they fertilize. It is a regimented thing that they know how to do. Those crops. You know what I'm talking about. You have your friends, you all root for a certain team, you know what kind of jokes, you know what kind of food your, your friends will eat, you know all these different things about the Harvest you're familiar with. But then there's another harvest out there. A harvest that you really don't like. A harvest that you're not used to. Maybe it's not that you don't like, but you're not accustomed to what they eat. You're not used to the jokes that they tell. You don't know what kind of football they play. Is it the kind that is really soccer and not football? But I want you to notice that Jesus is saying, there's two harvests. Yours, the one you understand and know, but then there's the other, the one you didn't work for, but I'm going to give you. And a whole city comes. And so we in America are, are like that to a certain extent. We're used to the harvest that's around us, and that's not saying we need to give that all up and go after this other harvest. Jesus led one woman to the Lord, and she brought the city. Sometimes that other harvest is a one person who we empower and help and reach. And they reach the city. They bring those other people. But I want you to notice the amazing, profound thing that Jesus says. Open your eyes and see. Now, I don't think he's talking about this. I think he's talking about our cultural acceptance and ability to see. I never would have eaten a chicken fajita. I never would have eaten a fish taco. But I want you to understand something interesting. I've noticed that God does amazing things at the margins. You look at the book of Acts, and the disciples were stuck in the holy huddle, right? They weren't going anywhere. <laughs> they were just doing it better, and they were getting bigger. And then all of a sudden, some proselytes come to Christ. They, 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 they become saved. After a while, they're not even accepted that much. They don't feel it's their mother's. Interestingly, in chapter 8, at the persecution, the whole huddle is broken up. Jews go talk to Jews. Proselytes talk to non-Jews. Non-Jews go to Antioch. Antioch becomes the mission-sending church to the world. It is the other that goes to the other that goes to the other. Two harvests. The one we know, but then the one that sits on the margins. The one that 
multiplies and multiplies. Both loved and wanted by God. Both needed by God. The first sets up the second. The second becomes the first and it sets up the second. And on and on and on. I'll stop after this one thought. I love history. And I grieve as I look at history because of Matthew chapter 16 that says the church will never fail. And yet, as I look at the progression of the gospel, I see Jerusalem, I see the seven churches, I see the gospel progressing to Rome, to Spain, and on, and certainly we know stories of how it went south also. But the gospel light has been extinguished in Jerusalem, the seven churches, even in Rome. And I wonder, are we there now? Are we the blind who will not see that God has brought the other that we need to reach for ourselves? And I think that's why we need to embrace and reach out the immigrant, open our eyes and see the creativity of God and the very will of God to reach that second harvest. So that's, uh, that's my great passion. Pastor? Why do you sit there? As I show my Texas Longhorn and Spurs shirt. <laughs> this is the way we should always preach and teach. Is, uh, there we go. We threw, I didn't want that part. We threw the schedule away, right? So. question so uh, that's a very very deep and profound issue especially after an election Um, I think that the first thing I would do is I would start off by realizing that my citizenship is in heaven 
I am a proud American. I really, really am. In spite of all of the warts that we have, in spite of all the failures that we have, but being a good American doesn't mean uh, I surrender my primary citizenship, which is in heaven. That also doesn't mean I break the law. Um, But I remember that when I get to heaven, God's not going to ask me, were you a good American? Um, He will ask me, did you fulfill my mission? First of all, we get to heaven by faith alone. Uh, Let's make that really, really clear. So, but, but when we're giving an account of the Bema seat for the rewards and those sorts of things, we are all given a set of gifts, our intelligence, our gender, uh, our privilege, our gifts and talents, and it is those things that we will give an eternal account for in terms of being pleasing to the master. Mm -hmm. Um, And so while I'm a good citizen, I pay my taxes, I vote, even though sometimes I wish I had two votes. (laughs) I'm from South Texas, so we have a rich history of of the dead voting. (laughs) I I just can't do that. But I think for me, the the biggest issue is making sure that I remember the end from the beginning. And that is, I want to make sure that I'm dealing with eternal issues, soul issues, uh, being a good American, but making sure that the church stays relevant. I, I think that's one of the biggest issues for me. I keep on looking at the church failing in different areas and dying. And I'm concerned that we're there now ourselves. So the big issue for me as a churchman is how do I not let that happen in my time? How do I help the church see what's happening? I don't want to be like the disciples who really didn't even get, even, in, even after John 4, even after Acts 6, they're still not getting it. In fact, even in chapter 11 of Acts when Cornelius, 10 Cornelius, and then Peter has to go give an account of the of what they did. And after they hear the Holy Spirit fell on them, the disciples said, so then, God has given to the Gentiles. And so I was like, oh man, I can't believe we, they got it also. I don't want to be that. Yeah. I want to be excited about what God excited about. And I believe that God is bringing different people here, not as a curse, but as a blessing. I want to be part of that. Yeah, let me circle back around to that because that's a, what Alex is mentioning at is very, very important. So uh, hopefully I can remember that in a minute because I have one of our questions. Uh, it's important to do exactly what's on the screen. A biblical worldview on immigration. Help us understand, does the Bible speak to this issue? Obviously you've already given us some very directive things that have done for Where else would you tell us this, this, this isn't a political issue. This is a, a, a theology issue. This is a moral issue. This is a God issue. So, uh, chapter 4, it says, open up your eyes. Chapter 5, that idea comes up again, where Jesus is being persecuted for doing a good thing. They ask him, why do you uh, do this? Jesus told them there's five, reasons, five things. I, for the, my father is always at work. I look to see where the father is at work, and I only work there. I believe our issue is seeing what God is doing. But I do not believe that I should be looking for a, an economic, a sociological, a political grid. For me, I've always got to get back to the biblical and theological grid. So instead of asking... Uh, even when it comes to who do I vote for or where do I live or, or what do I do, what is the biblical grid for living my life? And so when it comes to issues of immigration, migration has always been a major theme in the Bible. From chapter 11, where he's, you know, chapter 2-3, where he says, go forth and multiply, go forth and multiply, and then Noah, go forth and multiply, and, and you know, the whole issue has been going out and multiply and make disciples wherever you go. But you also see Abraham migrating. You see 
migration throughout the whole thing. Jesus was a refugee. You see Esther, you see Naomi, you see all, all the while God is using migration as a, almost an evangelistic tool. So that you look at Acts chapter 17, verse 26 and 27, where it says, we are one blood, one nation. God sets the times and the boundaries. So he's using the changing of borders, the changing of times, famine, war, and all of those issues as they push and pull. But verse 27 gives us the reason why. It says, so that they might hope, find hope, so that they might grope for him and find him. God uses famine, war, migration, and all kinds of issues, fires, as a way to make us look to see where he's at work in these matters. Isaiah says, God is the God of light and the God, light of calamity. In everything, we need to have a worldview. Where is God at work in this? And John chapter 4 and John chapter 5 say, open your eyes and look, which for me means look biblically. Number one, where is God at work? Number two, where do I work when he's at work? So for me, I look at the biblical passages. I look at Paul working with Philemon and Onesimus, a runaway slave, out of status. How did God work with Onesimus? Paul worked with him, discipled him. At the end of the day, sometimes what you got to do is send them home. But you don't send them home alone. You send them alone with a letter to that person or you step into their issues. So we need to understand that God speaks to this issue today. Let's speak to that for just a moment. Maybe in our journey this morning, you've opened our eyes to understanding. Sure, we understand that, that how God sees man, his creation, Paul articulates it multiple times. There's neither Jew nor Greek nor Scythian nor barbarian nor free nor slave nor male nor female. All are the same, Yeah. right? We talk about... Uh, Revelation, where it talks about the throne room and how all nations will be gathered there. So when we look at this understanding, I don't know how much we would have a, a challenge or issue in understanding the, the divine acceptance of each person uh, or our acceptance because we see God's divine mark on each person. That gets a little bit more challenging because we know racism exists, we know biases exist. But for the sake of argument, none of these people here experience any of that. And so, since we're free and clear from that, let me take it a little bit further and say one of the aspects I hear continually uh, in the ether around me is, well, what about the law? What about the law? Do we, how do you deal with those that are coming looking for something better, right? Which is straight out of Hebrews 11. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that all of those Hall of Fame individuals, they went through what they went through, not having a home of their own, but they were fine because they were looking forward to a future home, mm -hmm. a heavenly home. And so this really speaks to that mm -hmm. idea of dual citizenship that mm -hmm. you're talking about. But what about the law and how should the church respond to the issue of, hey, Romans 13 mm -hmm. is, is very clear. Mm -hmm. and, and how do we live in, in, in light of that and the idea of... of uh, a wall or open borders or speak to that if you uh, So for your sake, uh, speaking in terms of a biblical worldview, we specifically asked ourselves all the hard questions, including that one. What about the law? And so we have a paper that we wrote that I sent to Jeremy for any of you all that want a fuller discussion in terms of that, because we are people of the book. And clearly the scriptures obey government. So there are some evangelical denominations that say, forget about the law. The law is wrong. We're going to just do whatever the blank we want to do. We're not that kind of folk. Uh, in the evangelical free church, we are committed to making sure that whatever we do is biblical. And that includes addressing the issues of obedience to civil government. Uh, when Paul wrote Romans 13, uh, the Caesar was quite a corrupt person. And yet he said, now there comes a time 
for civil disobedience. I'm not there. I'm not even close to there. Uh, the government hasn't told me I can't love and evangelize and disciple. So there is an element in which we have to figure out what does the law say? And clearly, as we were working on immigrant hope, the law does not say you, as a pastor, got, has to turn somebody in. In fact, they would tell you, stay out of it. It's not your job. You do not have the resources to determine that. And in fact, the law right now is a little bit broken because, for example, half of the people here that are undocumented are not even felons. Which is why they're talking about fixing the law, because they need to really change it. If somebody stays here and they come here with a visa and then they're out of status, that's actually just a, a misdemeanor. It's like a traffic ticket. So the whole issue of the law is fuzzy and they're trying to fix it. So when I talk about a world of view and making sure that I want to keep the law, I want to make sure that we understand, first of all, what the law is. I want to make sure that I try to help people keep the law. So everything that we do are doing at Immigrant Hope is helping people figure out what does the law say? Sometimes the most compassionate thing you can do for an undocumented person is to say the way the law is written now, you cannot become a citizen. Because a lot of them are going and being taken advantage of by uh, unscrupulous lawyers or, or notarios. So it's important for us to understand we don't have an option in terms of obeying the law. We will obey the law, which means we need to understand the law, which means, though, that we can't speak to the law. I don't know if you uh, all have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a great theologian. Uh, I, I studied him, and he came to this. He was in, stuck in a time when Germany was... Uh, the Lutheran Church was Zig Hale, they were marching, they were, I mean, it was awful. He was a pacifist. And so his brother worked for the government, got involved in a project that was going to try to kill Hitler, but he's a pacifist. So theologically, he walks through a worldview, how do I kill Hitler? And he had these three things, and one was, it is... Human government and the church are two institutions developed by God. We must obey. But he said, church has a responsibility to speak to moral issues. Well, but what happens if church is not in agreement on that, as even this day? Well, he says the second step is church has the responsibility to step in and assage and help where they can, where there is that hurt, which is what Immigrant Hope tries to do. The third thing, he says, well, then you stick the spoke, uh, a stick in the spoke and turn it over, which is what he meant by civil disobedience and killing Hitler. We're not going there in terms of our effort. Uh, we're not even close to being that. So it's important for us to have a biblical worldview where we will say, we are going to follow the Bible, we are going to follow the government, we're not being told, we can't evangelize, we're not being told. So it's important for us to lay out a clear premises. Bible, yes. But here's where it does get tricky. Because there are some, ev some evangelicals that will believe even like I do, and yet they... Uh, lose balance with another biblical issue, and that is the dignity of the individual. We are created in the image of God. And so if nothing else, we slow down when we start talking about these sick, uh, thieving, law-breaking, uh, we need to just pack them up and move them out. And what we need to do is understand that having a biblical worldview means that I value every individual. And if that does anything, that first causes me to go slow about calling names and be careful that I do not lay my political worldview 
ahead of my biblical worldview. So being biblical requires that I have a systematic grid of all of the different components. The rule of law, yes. Dignity of the individual, yes. And sometimes the only difference is I let some things work out. Thank you. Uh, well done. Uh, well explained. And thinking back to parlay off of your comments, we were speaking about thankfulness last week. It is a season. And so we were in Matthew 15, uh, where uh, the story of the feeding of the 4,000. Just prior to that, you can see where the, the ruling authorities, we'll just use that terminology, confronted Christ because his disciples were breaking the law. And they were continually challenging Christ in these areas. Whether it was the Sabbath, whether it was healing someone on the Sabbath, uh, the law, the law, the law. Uh, Christ, uh, without getting too far down that road for the sake of time, The response Christ has here was very telling to me. He says it's not what goes into the mouth. But the issue was, was eating on the Sabbath, unclean hands. And they weren't cleaning their hands before properly, according to the law. And so Christ says it's not what goes into the mouth of the individual that makes them unclean. It's what from the heart, it's what proceeds out of the mouth, or what proceeds from the mouth comes from the heart. And I think there's deep wisdom in that to address this issue. And I hope I'm not making too much of a jump. But if we're talking about the issue of the law, and Christ being confronted with the law, about individuals who are trying to simply eat, these are life issues. And Christ certainly seems to say, we need to understand the purposefulness of the law, but the reality of yeah. life. And, and so I, I don't know if there's some, some aspect of that, that, whether it's that or, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, man was made for the Sabbath, but it seems to speak to me in a higher sense that, of course, we need civil discourse. Of, of course, we need laws. We need to have uh, a process whereby, otherwise we have anarchy. Uh, I think the takeaway today that I want for our church and for anybody that's watching the broadcast really sincerely works with the idea of how are we going to be Christ-like in the midst of a world that operates to these constrictions of laws, differencing of opinion. What is the best way for us to proceed that would glorify the Lord uh, in all of this? And so maybe some thoughts on that level. Yeah, a couple of thoughts come to my mind, even in the Old Testament, you know, where it's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, in the Exodus and the Leviticus, where it's laying out the laws for different things, even there and in the Proverbs, you get this sense that there is some compassion built into the law even. For example, a man who stole bread because he was hungry had a different had a different judgment than someone who just stole to get rich. So it's interesting to me how we will quote the verses that we like because they justify, and yet we'll miss the compassion that was built into the law. Even Jesus, when they brought the, the adulterous woman before him, Jesus, who wrote the law, as far as I'm concerned, about stoning, exercised compassion. So... That's what I mean when I say law and the dignity are two very biblical components. Now, the person who stole and was caught, even if he was hungry, still was judged and told, you do have to pay it back. And the woman who was caught in adultery, the law did not say you didn't sin. <laughs> it's important to understand, sin is always still called sin. Sometimes it's the application of the sin. Sometimes it's the... Um, sometimes it's, it's just the way that it's applied. So we need to be very, very careful that we understand that the law if, is a gift 
But it was never something that was to save us. It was to show us where right and wrong is. Getting back to a, the issue of immigration, I think one of the most important things for us to do is twofold. One, it's good for us to travel internationally and realize how absolutely blessed we are. I mean, our restrooms are so clean compared to... <laughs> and you get to sit down. <laughs> uh, our food, our water. We need to understand how absolutely blessed we are as a, as a country. And that blessing should help us to be a little bit compassionate in terms of sharing. But second of all, when the, the immigrants are here among us, whether they're documented or not, I think we need to understand that maybe God brought them here for us. M maybe, maybe God brought them here to teach us something about us. And, and rather than seeing them as the odd ones, maybe they're here to teach us to cook our tacos a little bit differently. Uh, maybe they see things that are different. For example, every one of you all who's married, you know what I'm talking about. You're already married to somebody who's diametrically different from you. I've been married 42 years. It is a blissful pain. Blissful pain. When I married Julie, okay, so she's from North Dakota. I'm from South Texas. Brown, white, farm, city. And then you throw in all the other things. Uh, abstract, concrete, introvert, extrovert. And yet I am married to this woman. There's not an option. And so that means I have to, I have to listen and if I want to go to bed at night and have peace, that means I'm going to have to really grow up. And that goes both ways. That goes both ways. So, okay, so if that happens in marriage, think about someone who comes from another culture, and maybe they see things a little bit different than us. I have to tell you, I'm richer by being married to someone very different from me. It is a painful bliss, but I see things different because I get to see them through her eyes. I grew up with five brothers. God gave me five daughters. <laughs> Think about it. Is God being evil? Here, uh, uh, but you know what? I, I'm proud to call myself a girly man, and, and that says nothing about homosexuality. I mean, there's something wonderful about the the the, the women gender. I mean, that's they're absolutely on a different plane than we are, and it's good. Uh, what about an Indian or an African or, you know, think about it. Maybe God made this diversity on purpose. We in America would like to nail our borders down and make sure everybody eats a certain way or thinks a certain way. But maybe God wants us to be transformed as a nation so that we can transform the nations. Well, if I could speak to that, and we're going to have to close my apologies. It's a rare thing for us to be able to have someone like Alex. So let's be sure to thank him for the end of the day. Uh, but I know that we have appointments. Um, and, uh, but in closing, thinking about your demonstration and your articulation of uh, Paul's work with Onesimus and or Philip, that it is it is a tremendous study in this area. And I once heard somebody say, uh, or, or articulate it this way, uh, compassion without compromise. 
And, and it, it truly is the understanding that when we see Paul's demonstration to one who had uh, left his master, was on the run, had crossed into territories he had no business being in, was seeking refuge, on and on. Paul did not immediately send him back. Uh, Paul worked with him. Paul shared with him. Paul evangelized him. Paul cared for him, took care of his needs. And in that process, as you articulated in our, our, uh, our ABF this morning, discipled him. And then started the process to say, you need to make this right. Okay, we can't keep, we can't just keep pretending on this. And so he, he created the passageway, for lack of a better term, to reunite uh, Onesimus and Philemon, or Philemon. Right. And so I, I think there's a lot of valuation to that to help us understand the balance of what it means to be Christ-like in this discussion and what does it mean to have a biblical worldview of, of immigration because it will be all nations. It will be all people. And it's not an illegitimate, I hope you heard Alex say this, it's not an illegitimate issue or concern to say, well, what about the law? Well, what about the challenges of, of dealing on those laws? At the same time, what we are saying is that Scripture talks about uh, the valuation of people and acting in compassion. And then we saw in the moment that the moment presented itself to Christ with the woman, where the disciples would have said, we're not even going into that territory. There's borders. There's walls. Christ said, no, we're going to walk through there. I, I have a point. And I think there's much we can learn from that. This is not meant to solve the incredible political debate that we have in our country. My encouragement to you and to anybody uh, watching the broadcast today is to have the heart of Christ. Have the heart of Christ. And we'll find a way to work out those details. But let's start with having the heart of Christ. Uh, let's give a big hand to Alex and the Jewish